Good morning. It is good to see each of you, those of you that are visiting with us at the Mount Juliet congregation this morning. We welcome you. Uh, we are thankful to have the opportunity to have an emphasis on family, and we're thankful that Brother Bud Lambert is going to be our speaker this morning. Uh, if you are visiting, we want to encourage you to remain after the worship service uh, that will follow this Bible class, and we will have a fellowship meal together. You probably noticed as you were driving up the tents, and there are plenty of places for us to sit, plenty of food, and we would really enjoy having the opportunity uh, to visit with you. And we thank you so much for visiting with us today. It encourages us that you're here. And we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, already in the first worship this morning, we've been encouraged uh, so much by the lesson that Brother Bud Lambert brought us, and we look forward to this time of Bible study in this Bible class. Bud has been on staff here at Mount Juliet for 13 years, and he works 12 hours, 12 sessions on Monday, five sessions on Tuesday evening here, and then he also does this same setup for a few other congregations and also preaches at a congregation closer to his home in Alexandria. Uh, he has a Master's of Science in Marriage and Family Therapy from the University of Southern Mississippi. He has a Master of Community Counseling from Mississippi College. He has a studies in Greek from Harding Graduate School of Religion, and he also has biblical studies in Greek exegesis from Magnolia Bible College. Uh, he is very well studied. He also has the license for professional counselor from Tennessee, the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. He's nationally certified counselor, a certified family therapist, and a master's addiction counselor. Brother Bud Lambert comes to us each week if because of confidentiality, we would never do this, but if we said how many in this room, either you yourselves or your family, have been directly and positively affected by his ministry, there would probably be more than half the hands here that would go up. Uh, one of the things, I, I tell you this, I want to burn too much of his time, but I want to share this with you for those that, that haven't been here uh, long. When, when people have only been here a year or two, I, I always... Uh, find a little bit of inside humor when someone that's newer uh, goes through something in life and and they will usually eventually maybe sometime talk to me about it and I will say you know you really ought to go ahead and set up an appointment and see our counselor Bud Lambert and they look at me and they'll say you're like the fifth person that's told me that and uh and what's interesting is that a lot of folks think that you need to wait until your life is falling completely apart until you then are so humbled by a broken life that you say, I need help. Well, welcome to a congregation that's realized that's really a dumb thing to do. Uh, you're sitting in the midst of a congregation that realizes, wow, we go and we seek help in every aspect of our life. If you don't work on cars, you have no problem going to a mechanic. If you don't work on appliances, you have no problem calling someone to help you with an appliance. If you have a broken arm, you have no problem going to have a doctor to set that arm. And you're in the midst of a congregation of people that at any time life's feeling a little bit heavy and we don't know exactly what to do at a moment, you're sitting in the midst of a congregation that says, we have the best counselor you've ever met you really ought to take some time to talk with him. And we're so thankful that he's taken the time to be with us today. Bud?
Wow. I don't know that guy. I, uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of James, and I love the way in which James introduced himself as just uh, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's who I am. That's what makes me a valuable person is the fact that God loves me. That's the only thing that makes me a valuable person. That's the only thing that I really have to offer to anybody that's worth very much, and that is the fact that I'm a recipient of God's love. And um, it's a tremendous privilege for me to be able to be associated with this congregation and to have an opportunity to share my life with others who are seeking to know and to understand and to apply God's love in a very powerful, dynamic way to help us to overcome our selfish nature, which is really the cause of all of our relationship problems. I, uh, I mentioned earlier during our, our worship period about the, the leadership here, the elders, and that no congregation rises above its eldership. And uh, in fact, no organization ever rises above its leadership. The church is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. The elders have the responsibility of building up the spiritual kingdom of God, the rule of God's love in our lives that helps us to overcome selfishness. Uh, elders cannot do that unless they're in the process of growing spiritually themselves. And so the church here is blessed to have men that are humble, that are willing to look at themselves as individuals who are in the process of becoming. Not people who, are, who have arrived, but who humbly are in the process of growing in God's love. Also, the, um, the ministerial staff, you know, I, I, I just feel so privileged to be able to come every week and associate with the other ministers here. Uh, when we get together and have opportunities to go out and eat, it's, um, it builds me up. It strengthens me. We need each other. We can't make it through this life alone. Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 11, said, I long to be with you so that I may, be, may strengthen you. That is, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. that you and I be, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Whenever Christians get together and we talk about our faith in God, there is a power, there is a dynamic that is released that can't be found in any other place on earth. It's only when Christians, people who believe in God, get together and talk about their faith in God and the power of God in their lives that we receive encouragement, that we are strengthened. That's the power that, that I receive whenever I get to the privilege of associating with, with David and the other ministers here. So I want to thank you for the privilege that I have to be a part of this group, to serve under this eldership. I want to thank them for their confidence in me and, and preaching to you the gospel this morning. When we talk about the family and building up the family, one of the most important things that I've come to, to recognize is that 
underneath, my family is really on a, only going to be as good as I am. If I want to make my family better, I have to look at myself and see what I can do to be better. When I focus on everybody else and what everybody else is not doing right, that doesn't help families. All it does is make us angry. And the reality is, is that there's no such thing as a perfect family. We're all imperfect. We all mess up. We're all messed up. We're all selfish. We're all sinners. And by focusing on everybody else's mistakes and their selfishness and their imperfections, that doesn't change anything. If I want to make my family better, I have to look at me. What do I need to do to change to be better? I'd like to suggest this morning that one of the things that we can do to improve our families is by taking responsibility to develop a healthy self-esteem. Develop a healthy self-esteem. The Bible teaches that marriage is where two become one. Not where one and a half or two halves come together to make a whole. If you want to make your marriage better, be a whole person. Have a healthy self-esteem. Have a healthy self-esteem. Self-esteem and power are, go hand in hand. There are a lot of parents that feel powerless as a parent. They can't have the power to nurture and discipline their children. The child does not respect the parent. One of the things I've observed is that one of the reasons for that is because the parent doesn't respect themselves, him or herself. How can I expect my child to respect me if I don't respect me? How can I expect my child to value me if I don't value myself? One of the ways that we can become empowered as a parent is develop a healthy self-esteem for ourselves. Whenever I feel powerless, life is overwhelming. Whenever I feel powerless, I feel like I can be devastated by life. When I... When I feel powerless, life is fearful. When I feel powerless, life is more stressful. One of the most important things that we can do to improve our families is to make sure that we have a healthy self-esteem. I have been asked to talk about self-esteem. This is something that I've presented here uh, in classes and in, 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 in smaller group settings. And you may have heard some of the things that I'm going to be talking about this morning. But I'd like to present it again as a way of reminder for those who've already heard some of these things and uh, as hopefully something that can be helpful to all of us in improving our families. I'd like to begin by sharing with you what I refer to as self-esteem theory. Self-esteem theory. Self-esteem is how we feel about ourselves. If I want to improve my self-esteem, however, I have to improve my self-concept. Because self-esteem is based on self-concept. 
Self-concept is how I think about myself. And what's interesting is how I think about myself determines how I feel about myself. For example, if I think I'm stupid, I'm going to feel stupid. If I think I'm weird, I'm going to feel weird. If I think I'm worthless, I'm going to feel worthless. So in order for me to improve my self-esteem, how I feel about myself, I have to improve my self-concept. Now, our self-concept is based on our self-perception, which, is, which comes from our value system. I call it our spiritual mirror. If I was to ask you to write down right now what you believe makes a person valuable, and we were to look at it, you would be showing me your spiritual mirror. Because what you believe makes you valuable is what you're reflecting yourself into all the time. And then based on how you perceive yourself, it will then determine how you think about yourself and then how you feel about yourself. So our value system is really the basis of our self-esteem. What I believe makes a person valuable is really the basis of my self-esteem. Our spiritual mirror. I'd like to ask you to consider that there are two basic mirrors that we can look into. One is Satan's mirror, and the other is God's mirror. Satan says, look, this is what I want you to believe makes a person valuable. God, on the other hand, says, look, I created you, and I'd like for you to choose to accept what I say makes a person valuable. Now, this is really awesome, because we get to choose what mirror we want to look into. This is our power. Nobody makes me believe anything. I choose what I want to believe. You choose what you want to believe. Nobody makes us believe anything. We get to decide what we want to believe makes a person valuable. That's our choice. I liken Satan's mirror to a circus mirror. You go to the circus and you reflect yourself in this mirror and it gives you this really weird image. You're either really funky wide or funky tall or whatever. You get this really weird image. And whenever we reflect ourselves into Satan's mirror, into that weird image mirror, what can happen is, is that we can look at ourselves, perceive and think, oh, you're so gross and hideous. And then I'm going to feel gross and hideous. Because I've chosen to believe that that's a true reflection of who I am. You're gross and hideous. But really am I? Is the problem me or is it the problem, the mirror that I'm choosing to reflect myself into? Is it really that I'm gross and hideous or is it that I've just chosen to believe something that's not a true reflection of who I really am? Two things can happen whenever we reflect ourselves into Satan's mirror. One thing is, is that we can have a low self-esteem or no self-esteem, as I just described. Or another problem that can result that to me is equally as unhealthy and destructive is an artificial self-esteem. There are a lot of people that are walking around in this world today. If you were to look at them, boy, they're feeling really good about themselves. But they're sick. They don't have a healthy self-esteem. They have an artificial self-esteem. They're feeling good about themselves. It's based on a lie 
of Satan. Think about this. We go up to the circles, we look at ourselves in this mirror, it gives us this weird image again. And this is what happens. I look into that and I say, Ooh, you good looking thing, you. That's sick, isn't it? I think that looks good. I feel good about myself because I think that looks good, but I'm sick because I think that looks good. God, on the other hand, says, look, I created you. I created you. I want you to choose to believe what I say makes you valuable. Satan's a liar and the father of all lies. John 8, 44. Satan is a liar. He wants us to believe a lie. Jesus also says that Satan is the prince of this world. Now I'm going to tell you that the world, the people in the world, and I'm talking about people who are not living to please God, people in the world have believed Satan's lies and are following Satan's lies and are promoting Satan's lies and are trying to push Satan's lies onto us about what we should believe makes a person valuable. That's the world. He's the prince of this world. And we live in that world. And it's really easy for us as we live in that to get sucked up into it and to believe something that is not true. Everybody else believes that that's the truth, so it's easy for us to begin believing it too. It's so easy. And that's how it happens. This morning I'd like to mention a couple of lies that I have become aware of that the world is following, that the world is promoting, and that it's so easy for us to get sucked up into. I'd also like to ask you to consider that Satan is so good at what he does, he actually has infiltrated the church. And that these lies are also taught in the church. They were taught in the church in the first century, and they're still taught in the church today. These lies about what it is that makes a person valuable. See if you can relate to any of these. One lie is, I am a valuable person if I am accepted by certain other people. The idea of this is that if people that I value value me, then I must be valuable. But if people that I value don't value me, then there must be something wrong with me. Misbelief? I am a valuable person if I'm accepted by certain other people, people that I value. People that I don't value, I don't care if you accept me or not. But if people that I value, those are the ones, those are the significant people that I want to accept me. The emotional response to this misbelief is a fear of rejection. People who believe that their value is based on being accepted by other people have a tremendous fear of being rejected. Tremendous fear of being rejected. Because what happens when I believe that my value is based on your accepting me, then what I've done is I've given you my power to determine whether or not I'm a good person or not to determine whether or not I'm a valuable person or not. You've got my power. So I have a tremendous fear that you're going to reject me. 
Because when you reject me, I'm a nobody. And that's the feeling of shame. That's the feeling of, again, we talked about this morning, spiritual death. That's spiritual death. There's a difference in guilt and shame. Guilt is when I think I'm a good person that's done something bad. Shame is when I think I'm a bad person that's done something bad. There's a big difference. When I think I'm a bad person, I'm not a good person, I'm not a valuable person because you reject me, I feel spiritual death, shame. I'd like to ask you to consider that there's no greater pain that anybody can experience than the pain of being a nobody. There is no greater pain that we can experience as human beings than the feeling that I am a worthless human being. There is no use for me even to be here. That's painful. What happens behaviorally, some of the behavioral responses, there are a lot of different things. I'm going to share some with you. Some you may be able to relate to, some you may not be able to relate to. When I believe that my value is based on being accepted by others, I have a fear of rejection. And so behaviorally, I'm going to start doing some things to keep you from rejecting me. One thing is I'm going to be a people pleaser. People who believe that their value is based on being accepted by others want to make everybody happy. If you're happy, then you're going to like me. If you're happy, you're going to accept me. So we tend to do everything we can to make other people happy just so that they will accept us, so I can be a good person. Another thing that we do is not only take responsibility for other people's happiness, making them feel good, is that we can have a difficult time saying no. We have a difficult time setting boundaries. If somebody that I value comes up and asks me to do something, I'm not going to be able to say no. Because if I say no, they may not like me anymore. They may not accept me anymore. So I've got to do what they want me to do, even though I don't think it's really the best thing for me to do right now, but I can't say no. So I'm powerless. They've got my power. And usually what happens is that I begin to be very, very frustrated and resentful for other people for even asking me to do something. We're thinking to ourselves, don't you know how busy I am? Don't you know how tired I am? Don't you know how hard I work? And here you are coming and asking me to do something else. But the problem's not them. The problem's us. You can ask me to do whatever you want. I get to decide if I want to do it or not, if it's the best thing for me to do or not. But you see, a person who believes that their value is based on being accepted by others can't say no. And so they will do it even though it's not going to be the healthy thing for them to do. And they usually end up getting bitter and resentful and angry. They do it, but they're angry about it. All right, I'll go take the children to, the, to school or to soccer practice. Or, all right, I'll go and do this. Or, I'll clean the bathroom, you know. Or, you know, we, we, we can't say no because we want to make other people happy. But we do it with a bad attitude. We do it for the wrong reason. Um, let me give you some examples. One of the examples uh, could be what I refer to as the battered wife syndrome. When I believe that my value is based on being accepted by others, I have a fear of rejection, and I can't say no, I can't set boundaries, I'm going to do things even though they're unhealthy for me and even though they're unhealthy for you. Let's say that there's a woman who believes that, and so she marries this man who happens to be very, very weak. His self-worth is based on being better than everybody else. 
So he's constantly, in order for him to feel secure in that relationship, he's constantly got to be putting her down. Weak men put other people down. They put their wives down. They criticize them. You can't cook right. You can't dress right. You can't clean right. You can't talk right. You can't do anything right. He's constantly criticizing her because he's got to feel good about himself. He's got to feel secure in the relationship. So he's got to be better than her. And what every battered woman that I've ever had the privilege of working with tells me is that ultimately this is the message that she receives. He ultimately will begin saying, you're such a sorry excuse for a human being. No other man would want to have you. You're lucky that I put up with you. And so after a while of her hearing that from him, she begins to believe it. So then she has two powerful misbeliefs. Number one, my value is based on being accepted by other people. Number two, he's the only human being, he's the only man who will ever accept me. So what that does is it gives him tremendous power. He can begin physically abusing her, sexually abusing her, mentally abusing her, emotionally abusing her. And she just takes it. People say, why? I mean, he's going out and he's fooling around with other women and she just stays there. He's actually bringing his girlfriend over and expecting her to put up with it. Why? There are a lot of different reasons, but one of the main reasons, the underlying reasons, is that they tell me, Bud, the pain of being abused is not as bad as the pain of being a nobody. As long as he accepts me, at least I can feel good about myself. So that's an example of what happens whenever we believe that our value is based on being accepted by others. We can end up just being such a big people pleaser that we actually engage in unhealthy behavior, not be able to set boundaries, and ends up hurting us and hurting our children. Another example would be codependency. Codependency is kind of a popular cultic word, but I'd like to share with you that The idea of codependency, underneath it all, is the misbelief that my value is based on being accepted by another human being. It's when I seek to love another person out of selfish motives. I'm going to love you, I'm going to do good for you, just so that you will accept me. That's selfish. It's not real love. It's artificial love. Let me give you an example. Here you have a woman who believes that her value is based on being accepted by a man. And it can be a man or a woman, but this is the way I commonly see it. You've got a a woman who believes that her value is based on being accepted by other people. She falls in love with this man who happens to be an addict. He's an alcoholic. And he smokes some pot every now and then. And what, what addicts do is that in order for us to continue addictive behavior, we make other people responsible for our happiness. We make other people responsible for our behavior. This is what all addicts do. 
And so you have a, a woman who believes that her value is based on being accepted by others. She gives her heart to this man. He then becomes very powerful because she needs him to accept her for her to feel good about herself. And so what happens is he says, okay, I'll accept you. But you've got to take responsibility for my drinking. She says, okay, I'll do that. I'll take responsibility for you. But now what happens with codependency is that whenever we take responsibility for somebody else, all that does is encourage it more irresponsibility. Why do they have to be responsible if we're responsible? And so if something's not going right, they're always going to blame us. It's your fault. For example, he says, you know, I would not drink so much if you just keep the house cleaner. I wouldn't yell so much if you'd just keep the house cleaner. So here she is. She wants her, him to accept her, so she works really hard to keep, clean the house, but he keeps on drinking. He says, you know, I wouldn't drink so much if you would just look better. You know, you're getting kind of pudgy around the middle there, and if you would just look more beautiful, I wouldn't drink so much. I'd love you more. So she starts cleaning the house, and then she starts working out all the time just so that she can be accepted by him but he keeps on drinking. And so he says, well, you know, uh, the kids. <laughs> I don't have time to do all these things for the children. You know, if you just took care of the children and I didn't have to worry about that, then I wouldn't drink so much. So she starts cleaning the house, working out, and taking care of the kids, taking complete responsibility for them. She's a single parent because he's out nursing himself with his alcohol and smoking pot. So she starts doing all that. All that does is encourage him to drink more and more and more and more. She took responsibility for him. Now, in relationships, we're not responsible for anybody. In relationships, we're only responsible for ourselves. I'm responsible to you to be the most godly person I can be, but I'm not responsible for you. You've got to answer to God for yourself. I'm not going to be answering to God for you. I'm not responsible for the choices that you make. I'm not responsible for the consequences. I'm not responsible for your happiness. How many times have you heard somebody say, you are responsible for making me happy? I hear kids all the time get angry at their parents because they think parents are supposed to make them happy. Parents can't make kids happy. God's the only one that can make us happy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's not the fruit of the parents. But a lot of times we as parents think, oh, I'm going to make my children happy. I'm going to make my children feel good about themselves. No, we can't. We're responsible to our children to help them to look to God and to experience the fruit of the Spirit of God which produces love, joy, and peace. We as parents don't make our children happy. We as spouses don't make our spouses happy. Again, our feelings are based on how we choose to think about things. But a person who believes that their value is based on being accepted by others will tend to feel responsible for others, how they feel, how they act, and the consequences. 
And all it does is encourage more irresponsibility. And it's selfish. Usually that codependent woman is going to think she's being this loving wife. Oh, I'm taking care of him. I'm trying to do so much for him. But you see, it's done out of selfish motives. She's not doing that to please God. She's doing that so she can feel good about herself. Based on Satan's lie about what it is that makes a person valuable. Some other problems that, or behaviors that come from that misbelief that my value is based on being accepted by others can be putting up boundaries as far as walls. When I believe that my value is based on being accepted by others and I look at myself and I know my imperfections and I know my weaknesses, I know where I'm not a, a good person, I'm going to be scared to death that you're going to see my imperfections. I'm going to be scared to death that you're going to see that I'm not as good a person as I want you to think that I am. And so what I'm going to do is I'm, going to, to, I'm not going to let you get really close to me. I'm not going to let you really get to know who I really am. So we put up these walls. Because we have a tremendous fear of people rejecting us. Now what that does is it interferes with intimacy. We can't have close relationships with anybody. We can't be real. We can't be genuine. We're always wearing a mask. We're pretending to be somebody that we're not just so other people will accept us. We're not real. We're just trying to get other people to accept us and we'll do whatever it takes. And so in, in marital relationships, when husbands and wives when their self-esteem is based on being accepted by their spouse, they're constantly trying to pretend to be something that they're not, to hide their weaknesses. They have a hard time with intimacy. They can't talk about feelings. They can't talk about what they're thinking. They can't talk about what they want and need because they're afraid that if they do, that they'll be rejected. And so it interferes with intimacy and closeness and the oneness that God wants us to have in our marital relationships. Because we're afraid. That's what Satan does with that misbelief. It's powerful. Uh. Quickly, another misbelief, and I'll run over this very quickly. Misbelief is I'm a valuable person if I meet a certain standard. If I meet a certain standard. The emotional response to this misbelief is a fear of failure. When I believe that my value is based on meeting standards, I have a tremendous fear of failure. I'd like to ask you to consider that all of us have genetic predispositions for different problems, emotional problems, physical problems. We have all different kinds of genetic predispositions for these problems. What research shows is that only when we face a certain level of stress in our life are those predisposed um, uh, tendencies triggered. In other words, I may have a predisposition for cancer, but usually it's not until I've experienced a certain level of stress over my life that that will finally be triggered. Or if I experience a tremendous level of stress at one particular time in my life, it will be triggered. Now think about this. Think about how Satan works. And we talked this morning about death. But when I believe that my value is based on being accepted by others, and I believe that my value is based on meeting certain standards, and all I am is I'm living in fear. Every time I'm around somebody else, I have fear. My body's in this fight or flight response mode. I'm stressed. I'm, I'm trying, I'm surviving as a human being. 
that creates tremendous stress. And we can be more unhealthy emotionally, physically. We can actually have more physical problems when we believe these lies of Satan. Some uh, misbeliefs that, uh, as far as standards that I'd like to share, we're not going to have time to go over them this morning, but I'd like to introduce them to you, and I'd be more than happy to talk in detail with you about these uh, if you'd like for us to do that at some time. But one standard that's really popular in our culture and that our world promotes is that we have to meet the standard of looks. In our society, if you're a beautiful person, you're a valuable person. So if you're ugly in our society, you can't have a healthy self-esteem. You're a nobody. But then we have other people who believe that their value as a human being is based on how they look and they happen to meet that standard of beauty. They go around, you look at them, they feel really good about themselves, but it's based on the lie that their, their value is based on how they look. One day we're all going get, to get wrinkly and baggy and saggy and gray and droopy. and That's why a whole lot of old, older people have a, a hard time with depression when their self-esteem is based on how they look. Because then they don't feel like they're a valuable person. And they can't do anything about it. So it creates a lot of helplessness and hopelessness, which is depression. Another standard is the standard of knowledge. In our culture and our society, you are a valuable person based on the bits of knowledge you've been able to accumulate. Did you know that a lot of people go to school to be somebody? The reason why we go to school is we want to be somebody. We have been taught in our culture that you are a valuable person based on the 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 amount of information you've been able to accumulate, the bits of information you've been able to accumulate. Some of the most, I grew up, my mom and dad are college professors. I grew up in the academic environment. And so I have a reason to say this. Some of the most insecure people that I know are college professors. The reason is, is that, that they went to school and they got all that education because they wanted to feel good about themselves. They wanted to be somebody. <laughs> but the irony of education is that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. You feel even more stupid. And so what happens is that they develop what I refer to as academic arrogance. Academic arrogance is just a front to help you to to think that I know more than I do and to keep you from figuring out that I don't know as much as I want you to think that I know. I call it academic arrogance. These teachers make horrible teachers because they don't teach to help you to learn. I hated that I had to pay my kids. You know, I just spent tons of money to send my children to college and these teachers, and I'm paying for this, they don't teach to help my children to learn. They teach to show how smart they are. Boy, I hated paying for that. <laughs> Another standard is the standard, was that, do we have to quit? <laughs> we won't be able to get the other standards. Please let me not let you know that God says this, and we'll conclude and we'll talk about it later. What God says makes us valuable is this. If you were to die today, what would matter? Would it matter how you look? Would it matter who likes you? Would it matter what you know? Would it matter what you have? Would it matter what you've accomplished? No. If this was the last day that you and I were to live, the only thing that would matter is that you're accepted by God. If you base your self-esteem on being accepted by God, you've got power. You're not going to worry about being rejected by other people. You're not going to care whether they like you or not. You're not going to care how much you know, what you have. You're not going to be competitive. You're not going to be worried about showing how, how smart you are. You're, you'll be able to say, I don't know and be okay. You'll be able to say, you know, you're smarter than I am and still feel okay about that. 
powerful. I wish we had time to talk about it. Thank you very much. God bless you.